millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's The Wonky Show. Uh, we're here live at The Secret Life of Students in London. OFS Director for Fair Access and Participation, John Blake, has been sharing his views. We'll get across that. There's new data out on cost of living. We'll consider what might be done. And belonging might matter even more than we think. It's all coming up. It is not beyond the realm of possibility that nothing that has been done on access in the last 20 years was anything other than the accompanying um, uh, sort of carnival around a demographic push. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm Wonky's Associate Editor Jim Dickinson and here avoiding the lunch queue and the goujons, as usual, four fabulous guests. Sally Burtonshaw is Associate Director Education at Public First. Sally, your highlight of the week, please. Uh, my highlight was uh, earlier today when um, Debbie gave probably the best burn I've ever heard live on a wonky panel. Um, <laughs> which, uh, yeah, just really, I really enjoyed, plus the moment where she then also forgot her line and everyone thought that was fine. Well, helpfully, <laughs> here's a clip. I can't remember how I got onto this point, but I wanted to say that, so I've done that now, but <laughs> there you go. And it's reassuring to know that by studying at a selective institution, you can still talk in a, in a very authoritative way, even if you've forgotten what the point was. Yes, and that's, I mean, it's, uh, and that is, of course, the main... <laughs> oh, I wish that hadn't happened. It <laughs> <laughs> happens to all of us. Mike Radcliffe is an academic registrar and sector historian. Mike, your highlight of the week, please. Uh, my highlight of the week is getting an awful lot of very secret emails from an organisation and suddenly discovering how a bit of the government works, which is very exciting. Well, extraordinary. Maybe we'll come to that later. <laughs> Eve Alcock is Head of Public Affairs at the QAA. Eve, your highlight of the week, please. I'm going to go lowbrow and say the ham and cheese croissants in the lobby. <laughs> 10 out of 10, would recommend. Very good. All about the bottom, bottom, bottom end of Maslow. And uh, Mark Leach is Editor-in-Chief at Wonky. Mark, your highlight of the week, please. Well, Jim, apart from being at Sloss, which has just been a, a huge labour of love, and, 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 and to get here finally and, and everything going so well, uh, to be a guest on The Wonky Show rather than the host is a bit of a treat. I can sit here and give you notes from the sidelines, which I'm sure, I'm sure you'll find helpful. So, yes, we start this week with John Blake. The man responsible for the Eeyore has been tiggering around on stage here at Sloss. Mike, what did he have to say? So, uh, I think the, the interesting thing is where we sit. So, we've got confirmation that by the end of this month, English providers will know where we're going. We'll see the end of the consultation. I don't see any sense that that's not going to be the direction of travel. Uh, which is a, a, a surprise in terms of an OFS consultation <laughs> exercise. Uh, so we, we know where we're heading with that. Um, but we had a, a robust discussion about where that would look, what that looks like and how that's going to work for people. So uh, John uh, puts across the message of why we should be doing things. If you've missed the message that it's eval about evaluation, you really have to pay attention to that. Uh, there's a very clear sense that um, the sector may have been doing stuff but if it doesn't know why it's doing stuff, it has to really think about that. And we could be getting it wrong, and that might be okay if we try to, try to do stuff. 
Um, and we have not just headed off crazily to do stuff, but we tried to do stuff. It doesn't work. He would actually reward us for doing that. So evaluating, finding out stuff, knowing that it doesn't work could be just as good. Um, but also a very clear sense that um, we can't just sit back and just try, you know, try keep doing the stuff we've always done. We have to keep thinking about how we're going to do that. Some sense that um, smaller providers might get some support in doing it slightly differently, but we are regulating a whole sector. So we can't have different rules for different people. And I think that comes back to one of those, one of those questions that, that hits us on the other side of OFS, as it were, the stuff on the quality side. So talked about the tension between the stuff we do on access and participation, and we know that kind of structurally that was set up as different. It's a different organization as it came into OFS. It seemed to be treated differently, but just how we handle that tension of getting people in, but then what do we really do about that getting on and then the moving on thing. So that link between what our APP does and then is it a completely separate bunch of people in the university dealing with the B3 and the TEF? And you know they never the twain shall meet. So we've got to make sure those things join up. So I think that's that's the message that comes comes yes. firmly away. This uh, this message about evaluation couldn't have been clearer, could it? Let's uh, let's hear a clip. We don't know whether a load of this stuff works. So we are taking a risk in the status quo. There is a very real chance we are spending substantial amounts of ultimately public and students' money on stuff that doesn't make any difference at all. It is not beyond the realm of possibility that nothing that has been done on access in the last 20 years was anything other than the accompanying um, uh, sort of carnival around a demographic push um, as um, uh, the sort of the, the working class and the low middle class in England decided they wanted their children to go into university. I don't think that's true. I should say that before anyone writes that down. <laughs> but I can't prove that and nor can any of you. And I think that's pretty worrying. So to be clear, the status quo is a risk. Sally, do you think that was fair? I, I, I always enjoy John's very robust phrasing of things. I think it provides some good challenge to the sector. Um, I think it is fair to say that often um, when we look at um, what interventions um, are happening in the, in the HE sector, there often isn't that much robust evidence behind them. Um, we see lots of universities doing things that might be called pet projects. Um, or certainly um, things that they are doing that probably have historic roots in something rather than because we know that and we can demonstrate that it works. And I think that is a really, really important challenge. A huge amount of money goes into the access and participation sector. And we want to be making sure that at the end of the day that we are maximizing the impact that we can have because they're each of those, all of that money you know, is impacting on individual students. Um, so I think it is a fair challenge. I think when we look to schools, we see that the, the evidence base for what works through things like the EEF is much, much more advanced. And I think that's really where we want to be aiming for is being able to say much more definitively what we, what we know works and also trialing what we think works in, in sort of the spirit in which John's, I think, challenge to us is intended. Eve, there was this fascinating exchange, wasn't there, where someone said, words to the effect of, John, are you seriously telling us that we should plonk in a bunch of reports, all the, all the failure? <laughs> and, it, and it does strike me that, you know, one of the things that I often think about when OFS people say things is they underestimate the pressure on people internally to kind of, you know, perform for the regulator. That... That is a concern, isn't it, in terms of, you know, how, how easy it is to actually learn from failure with this stuff? Yeah, massively. And, and, you know, we as a sector are not confident at failing. And I think that's where historically the under-focus on evaluation has really come through is that, that 
it, it's much like, I guess, in life, frowned upon. Um, and I think, like, harking back to my sad days, and I don't think this has changed much, um, it's really, really clear that the stuff that students' unions, for example, get movement on um, is the stuff that is being asked of them top down from the regulator or whoever else. And other things fall by the wayside. I can see nodding in the audience. Other things fall by the wayside as a result. And, you know, John Blake, to his credit, did, did recognise that when he was up here earlier. But I, I think we stopped short of actually following that down the road and well, what is being, what is falling by the wayside? And I know we'll come on to it later, but the idea, all of the ideas around community and belonging, I don't think has had as much focus top down as it should have done. And some of the research that we'll talk about later shows why that's a problem. Mark, one of the, one of the, one of the things that kind of lingers around in that conversation, whenever that conversation happens, is the age old question about the extent to which universities and higher education providers should be expected to fix the world. And, you know, you had a run at that, you, you, as, as usual, the, the, there was a run at that. But if, if a university thinks that, that seven interventions will work at the start of an undergraduate course, and then two years into, the, into that undergraduate course, there's a massive cost of living crisis, and the government says, well, we're not increasing you know, funding by anything like inflation, or that, that fairness equation goes out the window, doesn't it? And he didn't have much to say on that fairness, fairness equation. Yeah, and I, I did try and ask him about, you know, what, what doesn't work. So, I mean, this focus on evaluation is interesting. Um, but if he's right in this kind of working theory that, you know, maybe nothing has, maybe nothing has worked, um, it would also be very interesting to understand, you know, why that is. Um, and I, I, I wonder whether the tools are there to, to really understand that on an RFS level or, or on a sector level. Um, I think on the, um, I think he, he gives, he, in private, I think he gives a slightly more robust answer on that, you know, universities can't fix the world, um, line. I've heard, um, I've heard him push back quite strongly when, um, I mean, he did, you know, in fairness, he used the example of, you know, Oxford VC saying, you know, we know nothing about schools, even though, <laughs> you know, know quite a lot about schools, um, and 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 UCL and IOE being being the other example. Um, I think he gives a reasonable um, answer about why universities can't fix the world and fix everything. But I think you know it can't. That can't end up. That can't be the place we end up in this conversation because um, the point is that you know universities can do quite a lot. Um, he made the point, actually, uh, you know, they're often the largest employers in the, in the local community. Um, you know, there's endless, exa endless examples like that where the kind of the economic flex of a, of a university can, um, can matter an, an awful lot. And given the amount of students that go through higher education every year, there is obviously a ginormous responsibility for the sector to, um, to give those people an, an enriching, amazing opportunity, all the things that we're talking about today, all the, all the positive stuff and all the positive ways we know that's going to benefit their lives, their family, their, their, their communities. I think he's got a reason, reasonable answer to that. And in fairness to him, he knows also that RFS and regulatory action and, you know, him coming and talking engagingly, you know, sessions like this, um, isn't going to fix the world, yeah. uh, which is, which is, which is fair. But, um, I do hope he continues to push back. You know, that strongly when people say, you know, listen, John, we just, you know, we can't, we, we're just a university. No, you're, you're not more than that, yeah. you know. Mike, how does this work internally? Because I often get a sense that one of the things John's really saying is, 
It's all very well that when I pitch up on campus, there's three or four enthusiastic people and a really good presentation. A bit like when the Queen comes, not the Queen now, the King. Uh, when the King comes and, you know, someone has painted a particular set of corridors. But he kind of seems to give the sense that what he really wants to know is he could pop into any classroom and speak to any academic and they've been thinking about who their students are too. And I get a sense in some universities that it's the job of senior managers to protect their academics from regulation rather than kind of introduce them to it. Well, there's a challenge, isn't there? Was a, you know, he explicitly said that when he talks to senior leaders in universities, they'll say, well, look, there's a really good thing that happens. And it might happen here or it might happen somewhere else. But you know, someone's got the answer to this. But his challenge that it should everywhere should be doing good stuff. And therefore, how do we make that happen? And how do we roll that out? And I think that one of those things is where we've, we've externalized that in the past, we've said some external agency wants you all to do this. Can you learn what learning outcomes are, please? Because an external agency out there says learning outcomes are a good thing for you to do. You all have to do this now. And there's a huge amount of effort dragging a large organization to change what it wants to do in order to do that. And when we externalize it, I think we, we run a real risk because then we say it's this bad guy. So 20 years ago, it was the QAA. QAA says you all have to do this. And I think if we externalize that and say, oh, it's the OFS that wants it, well, actually, what will happen is, you know, John Blake will turn up and say, we never said to do that, thank you very much. Yeah. And then it just looked weedy. So that kind of continual challenge to have we thought about this, are we doing it in the best way? The, the stuff that Quality Assurance should be doing to make sure that we're all doing quality improvement. But if we make it because there's some kind of external requirement, it just washes out. Yeah. The elephant in the room is surely the market. I tried to push him a bit on this, but you know, it's only so far he can go. It's only so far RFS can go. But you know, a lot of the a lot of the problem, a lot of the problems that he identifies comes back to you know the market, and you know, RFS doesn't have an explicit role in in dealing with that. So that's you know, it's it's it's, it's outside of his brief. But he's talking about the wrong students going to the wrong course. You're talking about. Um, you know, universities understanding who their students are. Well, the reason why the students are there are for, for market reasons. Um, and, you know, RFS doesn't have the power to intervene and there's no kind of political will for there to be some kind of system that enables anyone to intervene in that. And I, I'm not even convinced that's necessarily the right thing. But the, the point is that, you know, what's, what's you know, why, stu why students are recruited to a university, you know, is not because of really any other reason apart from, you know, complex formula of, you know, market forces, you know, demo demography, geography, everything else. And if you think back to 2016 when Joe Johnson was promoting the shift and was complaining about lamentable teaching in higher education, the idea was that students would be able to work out where the lamentable teaching was and avoid it because that's what the market would do and therefore everybody would up their game because the students would go somewhere else. And I'm not sure that we've seen an awful lot of evidence of that. What is interesting, though, is, is how that then reflects in, in newer providers coming forward and thinking very hard about what they're doing with teaching and making that really good. And are they getting headway? And I think we, we wait to see how that's, that part of the market works. But at the moment, if you're a high-reputation institution with lamentable teaching, you're fighting students off with a stick. It was interesting to hear John Blake talk about teaching. Let's hear another clip. The... Oh, the overdominance of research in the conceptual thinking about universities has to end. Teaching needs to be treated as as fundamental, if not more so, to 
um, all higher education providers than research, and it needs to be taken as seriously, and it needs to be done as well. And I think there is a cultural shift within the sector that is coming, and I can see it coming. I, I meet um, uh, uh, academics who've been established specifically as teaching fellows. They they want to do that, and they're very good at it. Um, but it's a status issue within the sector that needs to be shifted as well. I mean, I hear people who sort of bemoan how dreadful it is that they have to, you know, educate these, um, you know, difficult students who have difficult demanding things and they want to be off researching. It's like, that's that's the deal. I mean, it's worth bearing in mind that the concept of the research-led university is 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 relatively new in the university concept. I mean, in the, in the 19th century, um, you know, the great HE reformer, Jow at Balliol, thought it was appalling that research would be brought into universities and it would disrupt everyone from the good quality teaching. Um, and although I don't think we need to go quite that far back, I think we do need to be clear that teaching needs to be consistent. Um, it needs to be better. Uh, uh, and those doing the teaching need to think through um, issues like reliable and invalidity. We often don't hear lots from senior people at uh, OFS about teaching ETH, but it was, you know, it was interesting to hear... John, and perhaps this is about his background in schools, talk really passionately about a kind of refocusing on teaching. Yeah, definitely. And I was, I found it particularly interesting him reflecting on what he felt was the over dominance of research in people's minds within universities. And it was sort of framed at the expense of, of teaching. And I think I suppose inevitably those two things are always pitted against each other as sort of mutually exclusive. You either have one or you have the other. And just because, you know, we know from talking to students that just because you have research intensive universities, it doesn't necessarily make it that university good at teaching. But I think it would be interesting again to kind of move that conversation on and say, okay, well, what has to make that move? Right. And I'm, you know, from what John was saying, that te teaching if we need to get better at teaching, we can't just forget about the research in order to do so. How do you get, uh, you know, academics who have uh, un unbelievable careers in research and are incredibly expert into becoming good teachers? And as John said, I don't think doing a sort of teaching qualification thing, uh, he, you know, he said that was far down the line and, and not, not in the near future. Um, but what's the middle ground then? How do we you know, get that shift towards just because you're a research intensive university, you're actually, you're very good at teaching as well. Um, and yeah, I mean, for me, that I think is the most compelling because part of what, for example, persuaded me to go to a research intensive university was because I was interested to learn from the latest and most um, kind of cutting edge bits of research. And so, we need to make sure that that is transferring to good teaching. Sally, just on, 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 just on timing, uh, one of the things he said was that by the end of the week, so by the time the podcast goes out, there will be an uh, insight brief on cost of living that, that kind of looks at the roundtables that OFS has been running on uh, what we know from a previous blog a couple of weeks ago on, on differential impacts of the cost of living on, on students. Timing-wise, by the time the, uh, the majority of providers have written their new APP, That'll be 2024 for September 2025. The cost of living crisis will be will be over by the time that providers are held to account by John Blake on this stuff about cost of living. That's that's outrageous, isn't it? I think a challenge in the sector is both being fleet of foot and sort of responding to those regulatory incentives. And I think that we are seeing the OFS take a, a role that looks increasingly 
accepting university autonomy, which is very important to all of us. Um, a, a comparison there with, with Ofsted, um, where we see some of those regulatory incentives, I think, being kind of focused on, as Eve picked up earlier, to the exclusion of other things. So I think that there is a balance to be struck between universities being reactive to the, to the needs of their students and that difference between generic needs of students, um, which we've unpicked a lot today, and the, the kind of the individual student groups and the reality of who those students are. Um, and also, I'm acknowledging that some of these problems are really entrenched. So we know from the cost of living, um, I think we're going to come on to this in a second, that actually what, what the cost of living crisis has shown us is it compounds the existing inequalities. So perhaps, perhaps sometimes we are at risk of sort of, uh, of saying, actually, we're focusing on the cost of living, where really this is about the wider inequalities. And, and that's one vehicle and one lens for looking at it, rather than by the time we get to 2024, 25, there will, it will be kind of, I, I mean, I'd love to think it was going to be completely irrelevant, but I just don't think it will be. Great stuff. Now, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hi everyone, my name's Beth Sennett and this week on Wonky I've been blogging about my experiences as a neurodivergent person working in academia. I highlight the experiences of many neurodivergent colleagues where the challenges we experience are often hidden. I talk about the systems, work practices and expectations in academia and how they're all designed to suit the way that neurotypical people like to do things. So those of us who are neurodivergent often end up having to swim against the tide every day just to do our jobs. And I talk about how many neurodivergent colleagues will often hide the challenges we face in an attempt to fit in and be accepted, and how this masking can make the challenges we experience invisible to others. I finish by arguing that if academia really wants to truly embrace diversity and diverse ways of thinking and seeing and understanding the world, then it needs to be willing to open its eyes and change its culture so that it's safe for neurodivergent colleagues to remove our masks and be who we truly are. Now, next up, the Russell Group Students' Unions have a new report out on the cost of living, and there's some scary stuff in there, Sally. There is indeed. I think there's some really shocking headline findings that are out today. So this is based on 8,800 responses, which I think is, you know, it's really... It's really great to be able to say that we are talking to students um, rather than just um, about them and on their behalf. Um, so 94% of students are concerned about the cost of living crisis. So this shows us that it is a, a truly universal issue. Um, everybody is worried um, about the cost of living crisis. Um, I think that the, one of the things that jumped out to me was the fact that the average student is living below the UK poverty line after housing costs. So this, again, is not a, it's not a very specific group of students. We are seeing this effect kind of or a huge number of our students. Um, one in four are regularly going without food and necessities and one in five are considering dropping out. So I think when we're talking about the, the cost of living crisis, we're seeing that impact on, on students' lives holistically, on mental health problems, on loneliness, um, and also directly on their academic studies. 54% believe their academic performance has suffered as a result of the cost of living crisis. And we know, going back to the, what we were said just before, our most vulnerable students are those most acutely impacted. So we're seeing an increased reliance on parents where that is possible. But we know that so many students do not have that safety net to, to fall back on. Um, I think one of the really pernicious things about the cost of living crisis as well is because it is affecting everybody, there will be an increasing number of students who cannot fall back on their parents because their parents are also suffering the ramifications of this. So that becomes really cyclical. But we know that mature students, students with caring responsibilities, estranged care experience, 
experienced, those working higher hours are all really, really struggling. Um, so that exacerbating of pre-existing issues. Um, there was quite a few calls to government. Um, so, so some actionable things, increased maintenance loans um, in line with inflation, grants for disadvantaged students, that increasing of the um, parental earning threshold um, to get maximum financial support, um, and the recognition of students as an, as an at-risk group, which I think really speaks to how the public see students um, as a kind of separate group rather than being, being across society. And then also a call for the sector about best practice sharing about university hardship um, and support funds um, with kind of that focus on are, are they too time consuming, are they too bureaucratic, um, are they humiliating our students who need to access them and who is eligible? Yes, that sort of having to prove your, your yeah. poverty thing. Yeah, yeah, really interesting stuff. Eve, one of the kind of critiques on... On, on social was, uh, you know, why are the Russell Group students union speaking just for the Russell Group? And it's like, well, you know, at least it's not doing what they're doing 15 years ago, which was just having lunch uh, when the Russell Group presidents used to meet. At least they're doing something kind of useful these days, which is, which is great to see. But as always, it's not the average for a particular group or a particular day. It's the differentials that I get really interested in. And that graph that was in the blog on the site this week, you know, for, for families that, where, where the household income is 25k or less, almost 7 in 10 say their academic performance has suffered because of the crisis. But for families who, who, who are earning 75 grand or more, that's, that's 4 in 10. That's, that's a significant difference that's actually impacting people's academic you know, confidence, if not, you know, we'll find out at the end of the year whether it actually affects their, their, their academic outcomes. But, but that, those differentials are, are, are significant, aren't they? Yeah, massively. And, and whilst it's, you know, it's always incredibly helpful to have these hard numbers in reports done from research to demonstrate what most of us know is already going on, it, it will always be slightly astounding to me that there's surprise when we see these numbers. You know, the, so much of what we see in the press is reporting on cost of living and why people think that that would be hitting students any less is, is kind of ridiculous to me. And, uh, and as, as sort of S Sally picked up on, I, I think our concern for students as a demographic, recognizing that there's all those differentials in there, are experiencing this any differently from, from the rest of, of society. I think there's a buffer through basically all of the like, kind of crap re rhetoric that people talk about students that's peddled, we see in the media and you know, far from me to, to want to get into culture war stuff, but I think that whole culture war narrative is meaning that policymakers are, are sort of turning a blind eye to the very specific needs of students during a cost of living crisis because it's a sort of, it's politically unpopular to, to kind of extend the hand to students as a demographic because of the kind of broader, um, environment. And, you know, so I, and you only have to talk to students to realize that this is a problem. And I think now we've got the numbers to back it up. Um, but I just think we shouldn't be surprised. And as you said, Sally, this, every time something like this happens, so cost of living, the pandemic, it's right that we look at how vulnerable students have become because of these, these things. Um, but as you say, it is just crystallizing all of the existing inequalities that exist amongst student populations and the different needs that different demographics have. And we shouldn't have to wait for the next big, the next pandemic or the next recession in order to give it the, the attention it deserves. 
Mike, it's not, it's not that long ago that ministers would, at least in theory, talk about what I often call the school uniform principle. That if you can get in, we'll put you all on a level playing field. You've, you, you, know, you don't need to worry about commercial debt you know, and so on. Now, it was never quite true, right? There were always people who did better because they, you know, they had the resources and so on. But, but why, why has it been so easy to abandon that, that principle over the past couple of years? Why, why, why don't ministers even make that attempt anymore? I don't know. I, I, I think there's, there, to pick up what Eve said, I think there's a, there's a view in the media about what a student looks like. And therefore, there's, it's easy to just go, well, it, it, yeah, students mm. like this, and they are therefore the, you know, the, the children of middle-class people mm. who are, are living in this kind of way. They're, they're full-time, they're residential, um, and they're, therefore, you know, students are like that. And therefore, in that kind of, is there sympathy for students? Well, they're extensions of families, and the family can look after them. Mm. And we know that's not what the student population looks like across the country. And one of the things I thought was really interesting about the Russell Group Student Union report is that they had looked at PGT and PGR students as well. So they hadn't just gone for, and, and obviously full-time undergraduate students would be well represented at those universities, but they had looked at a range of students as well. So I think we're, we're not good at, at showing the, the breadth of types of people that are in higher education, such that people would say, well, I could, I could see how a group of people would be wildly disproportionately affected by this particular set of measures, and that therefore there would be a problem there. And so I think we've just fallen into that kind of trap of, yeah, we know what a student looks like, we know that they'll you know, be in a hall of residence, then they'll be in an HMO, um, and that's okay, without going, well, actually, it's really tricky things. Mm. So some of the things we were talking about earlier about the, the impact on commuting students with cuts of public transport or you know, the, the huge amounts of increasing costs in particular sectors that are affecting students in a way that you know, the, the flat raise of the, the availability for the maintenance loan just doesn't pick up because it's averaging over everything that affects people in society, but students are disproportionate. Yes, in, in, in that particular basket, yes. Jim, just to pick up on that, I think, so Public First did some, some polling recently, um, and I think just to pick up on that sort of public perception that, that we've been talking about, um, and it is, is quite nuanced, so only 10% um, of, of people put students in the top three groups that they prioritise for support with the cost of living, but we're sort of competing with things like families with young children and those on minimum wage, so potentially people are not necessarily saying they don't support students they're saying that there are other groups that we should prioritize because when they were then asked um, whether they'd support the reintroduction of maintenance grants for the poorest students so again kind of you know making that more nuanced than just students as a as a homogenous body nearly two-thirds of so 64 percent were in favor so i think it is about sort of better understanding we sort of say uh, students as a homogenous group, but how the public see that is not necessarily homogenous. And if we can pick that up, I think potentially be more successful at making the case for why we need support, government support, but broader support for, for students in particular circumstances. Yes. Mark, uh, th there are a number of people who think, you know, we're, we're not that far away from a general election, that the Labour Party will somehow ride to the rescue on student finance. But if, if Keir Starmer was going to ride to the rescue, we'd know by now, wouldn't we? Not necessarily, but at the same time, I mean, the template they're taking, you know, in terms of how Whitehall is organised, you know, we've talked about this on the show, we've covered it on the site in numerous times, you know, the way that students, you know, it's not just about how the, how the public perceive students, although I think this is, you know, partly to blame, 
but it's the way the government is organised, which makes students basically no one's problem. Mm. And you get sent from department to department. So if it's, you know, you ask DfE about housing, they send you to, you know, housing ministry, etc. Round and round and round and round and round. No one, no one takes responsibility. It's just an endless, endless buck passing. Um, and and with universities and you know, essentially students being then even you know, kind of squeezed further out because of DfE being. Um, you know, such a big department responsible for all of education uh, and with very little expertise about, about higher education, uh, universities and students just, just fall, fall down, fall down that list. And as you know, we've, we've all experienced the sort of the buck passing is, you know, it's kind of surreal. So anyway, I think that, um, the template they're inheriting, um, is a kind of broken one. And I think this isn't, this speaks to me less about what Labour's policy on, student fees, funding, finance, and all the rest of it is going to be ahead of a general election, because that is a very tricky line for them to walk, I think, for, for a host of reasons. Um, and, and more about how serious they are about, you know, reforming the British state, because that's the, that's the, that's the problem here. Um, and, and, you know, students not having a place in kind of in, in, in thinking and policymaking and, uh, and, and the rest is, is, is part of, you know, the failure of uh, of governance, and um, they are, they have been making noises like they are going to you know rethink how all of these things are organised and structured, um, and if they do, then I think there's an opportunity to to kind of get in there and and, and highlight how how some of these things haven't worked in the last few years. Um, I wouldn't expect to see action you know promised before a general election, particularly because of the you know we quickly get into spending implications. Um, and particularly get into extremely large spending implications as soon as you start to unpick the, 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 fee, the fee loan system. So I wouldn't expect that to be promised ahead of a general election, but I think the thing we need to be asking Keir Starmer's Labour Party is you know, how serious they are about radically reforming the British state and where they see universities in that economy and you know, where they, where they prioritise students on the, in, in the pecking order. Well, fascinating stuff. And uh, elsewhere at Secret Life of Students, we've been talking about students and politics. Uh, let's have a listen. These are big gaps, and I think they're predominantly about values. I don't think that not being able to afford a house, all of that is real. Uh, but in many European countries, you can't get a job if you're young, and you've got to go to Britain. Uh, it's not clear that, and also, if it were the case that it was about socioeconomic conditions, you would expect younger people who actually have a, a high income, who have a job, who may be married, uh, to have radically different views from their peers, and we don't pick that up. It suggests that the experience of studying at university in itself does relatively little to shape British individuals' attitudes. Um, instead, it su suggests that self-selection is the key driver of the linkage between a higher education and liberal values. So the differences we're observing in graduates and non-graduates, economic and social values, materialise largely because individuals with pre-adult experiences, which predispose them to develop a like, particular kind of set of attitudes, are disproportionately going on to obtain degrees. Now, finally this week, here at 1Q, we're launching a new student research platform. And Eve, we're discovering more about the relationship between belonging and, well, you know, all sorts of stuff, really. Yeah, uh, absolutely fascinating. Um, so, uh, Jim this morning uh, talked us through some sort of pilot research um, they've done with uh, Sybil and some Pioneer SUs um, about 
as Jim says, a range of factors that students feeling part of a community influences. So amongst these, if students feel part of a community, they feel more able to ask staff for help throughout their, their course. Um, they have more confidence in their ability to complete their course and in, in, in the kind of assignments that they're doing. Um, and that sense of community in itself differs according to various different characteristics. So gender, disability, um, and prior schooling. That to me all sounded pretty common sense, um, but interestingly, and Jim brought this out in the presentation, um, the extent to which a student feels part of a community also influences the extent to which they perceive their assessment and marking to be fair. Um, so perceptions of sort of justice there, I suppose. Um, and there were three factors previously that we knew that impacted perceptions of fairness. So uh, criteria in advance, having sight of the criteria in advance, demonstrable um, kind of evidence that that criteria had been followed during marking, and then consistency of marking. Um, and again, they all make quite sense, that kind of procedural stuff about the perceptions of fairness. Um, but two of the things that were sort of hiding in the qualitative data um, was the extent to which the student felt that their personal circumstances had been taken into account and therefore whether or not they were effectively able to perform to the best of their ability. Um, and the other one was the extent to which they felt they had personal connections with the community um, that kind of surrounds their learning, I suppose. Um, and Jim was very fascinated by this. Um, but also, it linked, oddly enough, to something that I did my dissertation on, entertain me for a second. <laughs> um, I spent a placement year uh, interviewing... Link, link in the show notes. Link yeah. in the show notes. <laughs> yeah. um, I spent my placement year working with young offenders, so young people um, who committed crime uh, before the age of 18. Um, and I interviewed them about their perceptions of authority figures because lots of them have lots of different authority figures in their life, whether it be a youth offending officer, a sort of drugs and alcohol support officer, parents, teachers, social workers, all of that sort of stuff. And um, a thing that came out really interestingly in the interviews was this idea of uh, what's called procedural justice. So it's effectively the idea that if somebody feels heard and respected and connected uh, with the people around them during a process, so in this case, the kind of court process, then they were much more likely to accept the outcome of that process, even if that outcome doesn't benefit them. Um, and to me, it just really chimes with the research. Like it, it, when you think about it, it's obvious that if someone feels brought into a community and that they've got those personal relationships, you've got trust there, you feel respected, you feel heard. And so you have a higher perception of the fairness of eventually that end of that process, which is the assessment and the marking. And, and for me, it, it it massively shines a light on the value of digging into the qualitative data, which I know from my dissertation is not um, uh, is not a time kind of efficient process, but it's so, so rich um, digging into the why behind those metrics. And for me, that focus on uh, qualitative data is is so overdue and I really loved seeing it this morning. Sally, you do a whole wedge of uh, polling at Public First, but you know, often when I talk to your team, it's, it's, it's what someone just comes out with in one of the focus groups that causes everyone to fall off their chair. Yeah, I think 
I think that when we're unpicking the sort of quant and qual, it is, I mean, it's the age-old old challenge, isn't it, of, of how we best find out not just kind of what students are thinking in ways that we can quantify, um, but also that richness of, of kind of understanding exactly kind of why they might be feeling that way. Um, so we definitely can't, um, can't discredit that. And I think it was provided this morning a real richness to the discussion. What really struck me um, about some of the, the research I think you were, you were picking up on earlier, but um, was that the idea that a student um, who felt that their um, assessment had been in some way unfair um, was quite similar to some of the research around how often doctors are sued. And it has nothing to do with the amount of errors they have made. It has all, it's hugely to do with their bedside manner. And so that idea of sort of engaging students with the process and making them feel part of that process and valued in that is so much more of a hearts and minds issue um, than it is about a procedural one. Um, and perhaps that's really what has, has been sort of foregrounded in the, the discussion this morning. Um, and then I think, again, on that, if you've got personal if, you're, if it's the importance of having personal connections and feeling grounded in your community, I think circles all the way back to some of the EDI and access and participation discussions we were having this morning um, around feeling that your community is representative um, and, and you are part of it. But, but Mike, the hearts and minds thing is, is, is easy to talk about. But when, you know, students, you know, a huge percentage of students working over 21 hours a week, huge percentage of students uh, living more than an hour away is a round trip from campus. Um, we, we, you know, we saw in the, in, in the stats this morning the kind of drop-off in a sense of belonging and, and community for students that are working those hours and living that far away. This is easier said than done, isn't it, for some students? Yeah, and, 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 and we know, don't we, from there's you know, American research from the 70s that talked about integration, that talked about how you, if you're going to create that kind of community, you have to work at it with students. And if you, if you have students who are disassociated, then what are you going to do about that? How are you going to make sure they bring it in? So when we were talking about sticky campuses five years ago, that kind of sense of you wanted people to stay. But that's not just about producing, you know, easy chairs. <laughs> that is about making the, a learning community in which, in which people want to stay and work. And then, of course, there's a reason to, to, to engage and to understand things. And, yeah, if you're in a big lecture theatre um, and there's a person at the front and you really don't have any engagement with them and you come in and then you go out again or you watch them online, have you engaged? Is that going to be the, the kind of thing that makes you sticky? And therefore you will just find you're getting further and further away from that. So we have a problem. I was going to say, Sally, to your point about sort of bedside manner, if we're thinking about what that looks like in staff in universities, um, we've got to find ways to free up staff time to give that level of like, attention and and kind of care to the interactions that they have with their students when I was in my I think it was final year um, we had strikes and so I went to a sort of strike on teach out thing in a pub uh, in Bath where our lecturers were giving um, I guess a talk a sort of informal lecture with us all there in the absence of formal lectures up on campus because of the industrial action and it was one of the most engaging sort of interactions I'd ever had with my set of lecturers because we were taken out of the sort of hustle and bustle and time constraints of everyday lecturing. We were there, it was non-hierarchical, we were engaging in a lot of discussion. And so many of them said, if the system allowed, this is how we want to we want to teach. This is how we want to interact with you. And it, it really clicked into place for me why 
at that moment that they were striking because the conditions I don't think are particularly conducive at the moment to staff being a really integral and important player in creating that community that allows students to engage in their high quality learning. Well, fascinating stuff. Now, Mark, before we go, um, obviously, you know, we've launched this uh, platform very quickly. Why, what, how, what? Yeah, so this is uh, Belong. Um, absolutely so excited about this. We've been, we've been talking about doing this for, for literally years. Um, we're working with Sybil, um, who've got an amazing um, panel of, of students already. But um, this is going to be a, an enormously, enormously powerful tool initially for students' unions to better understand um, what's going on with their students. The core of the questions largely mirror the NSS, so you'll always be ahead. Um, and I suspect it won't take long, won't take many meetings with your universities before uh, people start inquiring about um, the amazing data they have. Um, we're also going to be publishing findings on a, on a weekly and monthly basis on wonky.com um, all year round uh, because it gives us an ability to have um, a bit of a pulse um, and so yeah it's an enormously exciting project uh, we're recruiting student unions to sign up to um, this uh, to, to belong at the moment uh, please do get in touch if you're interested we'll put links in the show notes um, and a lot more research to come out of that in the coming weeks and months and a lot more exciting developments for the platform over the coming months to look out for as well and different ways that you're going to be able to, to get involved with it so that's about it for this week. Remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com. Don't forget you can get the latest show automatically when it's out. Just search for The Wonky Show wherever you get your podcasts. And to find out how we can keep you and your organisation ahead of everything going on in UKHE, do head to the website to find out more about our subscriptions. So thanks very much to Eve, Mike, Mark, Sally, our news editor Michael Salmon who makes the show happen behind the scenes. Mark will be here next week. Until then, stay wonky. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.